to Walking in Faith with Pastor Rob Currington. This podcast is dedicated to helping develop lifelong seekers of the Kingdom of God. Each week, Pastor Rob helps bring God's message for living to those seeking a richer and more Christ-filled life. Now let's join Pastor Rob as he shares this week's message. Bibles, if you would, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 3, I've titled this message, The Basis of Paul's Confidence. The Basis of Paul's Confidence. Have you ever met anyone that was very bold and confident? You know, there's something about someone that has great confidence and great boldness that's attractive, is it not? You know, that's one of the things that you see. There's something that just draws us to men and women of great confidence and boldness. And, and, And I was looking at this, why is it? that they're so bold and confident. What makes it? Is there any of you here, here that are like me that sometimes you just lack boldness and confidence? Maybe it's in sharing the gospel. Maybe it's in, in, in trying something different. Maybe it's in like asking someone out. You know, you think of those types of things. But I thought of some men that had some confidence and boldness. Now, I love basketball, so I, I a lot of times go back to basketball, and I'm reminded of Larry Bird. Does anyone here remember Larry Bird? Okay, great shooter. Well, in 1988, in the All-Star, uh, 1988 All-Star Game, in the three-point competition, Bird had won it for the last two years, but there was a newcomer that was giving him some, some challenges that year. It was a sweet shooting uh, um, player by, by the name of Dale Ellis. But Bird, being Bird, was one of those guys that just had boldness and confidence. And one of them was quoting that says, as we were sitting down there, as we were changing and getting in the room, Bird walks in, Larry Bird walks in and raises his hand and says, who of you here are shooting for second place? What is he saying? Hey, I'm already here. I'm first place. And then the competition goes and Dale Ellis is just shooting the lights out of the basket. And Larry Bird goes last. And with the next to last ball, he finally ties it up. And with his last ball, the only chance he has to win it for the third year in a row, swishes that last ball as he walks off. Who's playing for second? Larry Bird says, I'm not playing for for second. I'm playing for first. I think of Michael Jordan. Listen to what Michael Jordan had to say. He says, I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I have lost almost 300 games. On 26 occasions, I have been entrusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. I have failed over and over again in my life. But he had supreme confidence in himself and his abilities. Even when he might have had an off night, he still wanted the ball at the crunch time. Now, you would think losing 26 games would do something to your boldness and confidence, but he said, I never looked at the consequence of missing a big shot. If I am jumping into any situation, I'm thinking I'm going to be successful. And yes, he lost 26 games at the end of the buzzer, but he also won 25 of those games. By the way, better than Kobe Bryant. I'm sorry. I just have to put that out. I'm a Jordan fan, Bulls fan from the old days. I think if for maybe for another generation, you might remember Douglas MacArthur, General Douglas MacArthur, one of the greatest generals of the earliest generation. He's quoted as saying, we are not retreating, we're just advancing in another direction. I love that type of boldness and confidence. 
or maybe his most famous words, you might remember this, I shall return, he says, as he leaves the Philippines. And a year and a half, he stands and says, I have returned by the grace of the Almighty God. Our forces stand again on Philippine sword. Why he had confidence, he had a boldness, I shall return. And let us not forget probably the greatest example and epitome of boldness and confidence is when the Terminator said, I will be back. That's the type of confidence and boldness that Paul had. And that's the type of confidence we're going to look at. But the question is, why did they have this boldness and confidence? What is it about these people that allowed them to, to, to push away any fear, to push away any doubt that they might have in their own talents and abilities? Why are they able to go past that? Because I tell you, I'd love to have that type of boldness and confidence. Wouldn't you? How much different would your life look with the confidence and the boldness of a MacArthur, of a Jordan, of a Bird. Probably, if we were honest, we would say that we would, wouldn't it? Our lives might look a little bit different. But Paul had some confidence here. And today we're going to look at the basis of that as found in 2 Corinthians chapter 3. And look at verse 12. In verse 12 of 2 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul says this, Since we have such a hope, we are very bold. Paul here is defending his bold speech in correcting the Corinthians. Remember, he had wrote a severe letter, and he's saying, this is why I was so bold. This is why I have such confidence, because of the hope that we have. Paul is continuing to answer the charge that he's not qualified or a competent minister of God due to the sufferings and the different difficulties that he had in his ministry. Paul contends that the Spirit's work in his ministry justifies and explains his confidence as an, as an apostle. You may look in that chapter, look at verses 5 and 6 of 2 Corinthians 3. We saw this last week where Paul writes, not that we're sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us. In other words, he understood, there is nothing within me that makes me better than anyone else. But our sufficiency, he says, is from God who made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So as we saw last week, Paul is saying, my confidence, my boldness, comes as a minister of the new covenant. He says that the letter kills. Well, the letter that kills is the old covenant. The Greek word letter here conveys the meaning of grammar. It's the actual writing of the letters. And what Paul is referring to is the stone tablets that God himself wrote. And we saw that as Matt shared with us a little bit earlier. But last week we looked at Exodus 31, where that God gave to Moses the stone tablets written with the fingers of God. They were more than just tablets. God himself wrote on those tablets. And then he's saying, that letter, even though it's from God, it kills. So in today's passage, Paul continues his defense by comparing the two covenants, the old covenant and the new covenant, and he also compares his ministry with Moses. So Father, we ask that you give us wisdom this morning. Open up our hearts to receive what you have for us. And I pray that this week that you've been doing the work necessary in our hearts to receive your holy word. 
And Father, as I speak, let me speak the words that are building and edifying. And Lord, even maybe the words of rebuke, but let them come from your spirit and from your word. Fill up anything that's lacking in my own talent and ability and wisdom. And may your spirit do the work that you've ordained for it this morning. God's people said. So in today's passage, let's go to that. So in verse 7 of chapter 3 of 2 Corinthians, we're going to look at Paul is going to contrast now and compare the Old and New Covenant. He says the New Covenant gives life, the Spirit, the Old Covenant kills. Now in verse 7, if the ministry of death, carved in letters on stone, came with such glory that the Israelites could not gaze at Moses' face. Remember that Matt read that earlier, is that when he came down from the mountain, his face was aglowed. And every time that he went into the, into the temple, to, or the tabernacle, excuse me, that his face would come out with this glow and he would have to cover it up. Because of his face, because of its glory, which was brought to an end, verse 8, will not the ministry of the Spirit have even more glory? For if there was glory in the ministry of the condemnation, the ministry of righteousness must far exceed it in glory. Indeed, in this case, what once had glory has come to have no glory at all because of the glory that surpassed it. For what if what for what for if what was being brought to an end came with glory, much more will what is permanent have glory. So in there we see the, the comparisons, the contrast. In other words, Paul is saying that the old covenant, the law, was glorious. There was a glory to it, such an effect that Paul, uh, Moses' face was shown with that glory. But yet the new covenant is much more glorious. It is so glorious, in fact, that it pales. It makes the old covenant pale in comparison. Not that the old was not glorious, but this glory is so much greater. He goes on to say that the old was chiseled in stone. It was hard. It was cold. Whereas the New Testament, or the new, excuse me, the New Covenant is inscribed and chiseled on a heart, a living heart. Hence why he could say that the Corinthians were a living letter, a living epistle. The Old Covenant was temporary. It was due to end. Hence he says that was one reason why, why Moses covered his face because he saw that the glory was fading. But the New Covenant is permanent. It will last for eternity. And then in probably the most strongest contrast and comparison, he says that the law, the Old Covenant, was a ministry of condemnation. In other words, it led to death. If you followed it, it still led to to death, whereas the new covenant was a ministry of righteousness that led to acquittal and life. In other words, it is only the new covenant that makes us right with God. The glorious ministry of the Spirit is Paul's confidence. What's the basis? The fact that he is a new covenant minister. And that's his confidence and reason uh, for his boldness. In other words, Paul's legit legitimacy is based on his being a minister of the New Covenant. So they may say, who, are, who is Paul that he could write to us like this? Who is Paul that he could discipline us? Who is Paul who could challenge us? And Paul says, I'm a minister of the New Covenant. I have a covenant that is greater. I have a ministry that's greater than that of the law. And not only that, he's going to go say, I have something that's greater than Moses. Essentially what Paul is saying is that the New Covenant is greater than the Old Covenant. 
In the New Covenant, the Corinthians are the written letter of God. They possess a new heart, a regenerated heart. They are what we call born again. And that's the heart that God had promised in the books of Jeremiah and Ezekiel, as we saw last week. And that's the kind of heart that you and I need to be able to stand before God. It's only the new covenant that we find life and life eternal. Now, as we look at that, he compares the old and new. And then you'll see that the new is much greater than the old. But yet Paul isn't done there. Now, you have to remember that this would have been very controversial. This would have been a very difficult thing for many people to understand. All they known up to this point was the old covenant, was the law. And it was in it that they found, or they believed that all things uh, were, were, were contained. But now Paul not only says, not only is the new covenant greater than the old, but now Paul is about to say that my ministry is greater than Moses. And now the men and, and, uh, and I have been looking at this on Thursday nights in our men's group and looking at how Jesus was greater than Moses. And we must understand that Moses was very venerated in, in, in Israel and in other uh, Judaism religion. Moses was the prophet. He was the one who led them out of Egypt. He was the one who gave them the law. Even today, Moses is considered the great prophet, not only in Christian, or Judaism, but also in Islam, and obviously in Christianity also. But now he says, my ministry is actually greater than that of Moses. We find that as we go to verse 12. For he says, since we have such a hope, we are very bold. What is he saying? Since we have a hope in the new covenant, we are very bold. Not like Moses, who would put a veil over his face so that the Israelites might not gaze at the outcome of what was being brought to an end. But their minds were hardened. For to this day, when they read the old covenant, the same veil remains unlifted, because only through Christ is it taken away. Yes, to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is what? Removed. Look at verse 17. Now the Lord is the Spirit. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. The hope of verse 12, again, is the hope is the Spirit. It's a new heart. It's a new life. And Paul says, in contrast to the old, the glorious ministry of the Spirit leads to boldness, in verse 12. Boldness to be able to preach and to share the gospel regardless of the consequences, regardless of whatever may befall them, whether it was sickness, whether it was health, whether it was richness or poor, whether it was through sufferings or great blessings, Paul says the boldness comes from the Spirit. Not only does the ministry of the Spirit lead to boldness, but in verse 17 we see that it leads to freedom. It leads to freedom. In other words, it allows us to be free from sin and the curse of the fall. And in verse 18, we see that the glorious ministry of the Spirit leads to boldness, freedom, and then glory. In the fact that we now become the image of Christ. We become transformed, and we're going to see that later in chapter 5, where we become a new creature. And that's what he's telling to the Corinthians. He says the, the law did not change anyone, but yet we have something now 
that is totally greater. The ministry that, that Moses had was wonderful. It was glorious. It had its purpose, but yet today, the ministry of the new covenant is greater still than even that of Moses. Now, as you read that, that can be difficult. <coughs> the question I have to ask is, what is the purpose of the law then? What's the purpose of the Spirit? Why do we have the law? And I came up with two things that I want to share with you to help us understand, what is he saying here? You see, the thing that we have to understand about the law is that the law proclaimed guilt while the Spirit proclaimed righteousness. Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. There's a couple of verses I want us to understand. The law proclaimed guilt while the Spirit proclaimed righteousness. Look at Galatians chapter 3 at verse 21. Galatians is in the New Testament. It's a little bit after 2 Corinthians, I believe, is it not? 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians. So it's the next book after. Galatians chapter 3. So the law proclaimed guilt while the Spirit proclaimed righteousness. Look at verse 21. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? I mean, that's a good question. If the promises, if, if the law is less glorious, if it's temporary, is it contrary then to what God has now? And Paul answers it to the church of Galatia by saying, certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be held by the law. In other words, can the law give life? Sadly, the answer is no. But verse 22, but the scripture imprisoned everything under sin. That's what the law did. So that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. By not, But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So think of the law as a guardian, someone who, 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 who's over you, someone who watches you in life, someone who governs you, keeps you within the lines doesn't allow you to get out of line so that you may not get hurt or be disobedient. And that's what the law was. It set down the law and says, this is how you please God by doing these external factors. But the problem is, is that no one really could do it. It helped us understand what God expects of us, but yet it did not make us right with God. That's why I say the law proclaimed guilt while the Spirit proclaimed righteousness. Because the problem with the law was, is that no one could fulfill it. So as a guardian, it was says, up, oh, you're outside the bounds. Up, oh, see, you're guilty. See, up, oh, you're sinning. The second thing I want you to see is turn to Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, we're also going to see that the law demanded obedience. As a guardian, it says, do this, don't do that. But we're going to see while the law demanded obedience, we're going to see that the Spirit empowers us to that obedience. Look at Romans chapter 8. In verse 1, Paul writes to the church of Rome, he says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Under the law there was what? Condemnation. It was the ministry of condemnation. 
For, verse 2, the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh, in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. What did the law demand? Perfect obedience. What did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 4, I believe? He said, you must be perfect even as the Father is perfect. The law sets to us what perfect is, but yet it did not empower anyone to do so. It's very simple, like going to a job and somebody telling you to do something, but yet doesn't show you how to do it or give you the tools to do it. You know, that would be kind of useless in a way. But here he's saying that the spirit or the law told you what to do to be obedient, but it didn't give you the power to do so. But hence, that's what the spirit does. For the Spirit comes, and by giving us a new heart, it now changes our desires. It changes our heart to want to obey God. It destroyed the works of Satan and the works of devil, and it freed us from sin. So now as you and I see the commands of Scripture, not only do we see the thou shalt and thou shalt not, but it now enables us to do so. See, that was what was missing with the law. The law proclaimed guilt and demanded obedience, but yet we failed because we could not do it. So Paul is saying what's so great about my ministry compared to Moses is that the spirit that we now have proclaims righteousness, how you can be right before God and how I empower you to do so. You see, the letter of the law, the old covenant, only specifies God's demand and the punishment for failing to obey. No one, though, can obey the law fully. The Bible tells us, Paul tells us Galatians, that anyone who, who failed in one point of the law actually failed it all. That's a pretty hard test. I don't know about you, but you know, when I take a test, I expect that if I get, if there's 100 questions and I get 10, 10 wrong, I'm at least at 90%, right? I at least pass. But in this case, imagine taking a 100-question test, missing one answer, and the teacher come back and said, you failed. That doesn't seem quite fair, but yet that's what happens with the law. But here God says, I'm making a promise to you, and I'm going to allow you to do or enable you to do what you could not do before. You see, all are cursed, and the curse is only removed through the atoning death of Christ. And that's what's so great about the New Covenant. That's why the Spirit's ministry is so much greater than Moses' ministry, greater than the Old Covenant. So you may ask, well then, was the law necessary? That seemed like it was just then, what was the purpose of it? That seems so defeating. Well, in Galatians, as he goes on, Paul says, why then the law? He says it was added because of the transgressions, because of those who transgress the law until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. So the question is, who's the offspring that would come? Anyone want to give, venture a guess? Jesus. Jesus was that offspring. In other words, he's the one who came and obeyed the law 
perfectly. He did all the thou shalt and the thou shalt not perfectly. And in it, he earned God's favor and righteousness. And see, in a little bit, we're going to be taking the Lord's Supper. And part of it is, is we thank God for, for Christ's sacrifice because it paid the penalty of our sin. But not only did it do that, but it also enabled us to have the righteousness of God. That's how you and I are enabled. That's how we are free, not because of our own goodness, not because of something we did within ourselves, but only because of what Christ did on our behalf. You know, this spiritual truth would have been very hard for the Jews to accept. And actually, as I thought about it more after writing that, I realized that this might have been even hard for the Corinthians to accept because we have to remember that the only scripture available at that time to the New Testament church was what scripture? The Old Testament, the law. Even the Corinthians who were not Jews would have had the Testament because that's what Paul and them would have been teaching from. At this point, we didn't have the New Testament. Now, many of those letters started circling. At this time, probably the Gospel of Mark, probably the first Gospel, had not yet been written and probably not yet uh, put throughout all the world, but they were sharing what Jesus did. So they would have to go back to the Holy Scriptures to find out. So this might have been very difficult for them. Because as they're reading it, they're thinking, well, here's the law. The Jews hold this very tightly. We need to accept this. Because they believe this, that the law led to life. But Jesus, speaking to the Pharisees in John chapter 5, says this to them. He says, you Pharisees, you religious leaders, you scribes, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. The problem is, is that they did not lead to life. Paul himself says, I'm zealous for the works of God. As a Pharisee, I'm a Pharisee above a Pharisee. As a Hebrew, I'm a Hebrew above all Hebrews. But it did not lead to life. Jesus is telling them, you're looking in futility. You will not find what you're looking for when you believe that the law themselves lead to life. However, Jesus also in that passage tells them that the law and the writings and the prophets are profitable in the fact that in John chapter 5, 46, he says, for if you believed Moses, you would believe me. For Moses wrote of me. So is the law necessary? Does it have an important function? Yes. For it points to the one who will enable us to obey in the way that God has called us to do. And what we see here is that even today, that when the law is opened up, or we should say yesterday, Saturday, the Sabbath day is the day when Judaism, for the most part, opens up the scroll, the Torah, and they would read it. It says, even to that day, when Paul writes this letter in A.D. 55, 56, and even to us today, 2,000 years later, is that it is, writ it is read out loud, but yet their hearts are hardened that they do not see that the old covenant, the law, does not lead to life. Still blinded, that's what Paul says. Just as Moses put a veil over his face because the glory was fading, so is it too that many people have a veil over their hearts. As they read the law, they do not comprehend the futility of looking for life within that law. The remedy is what's found in Ezekiel and Jeremiah. The remedy for a hardened heart is the Spirit. 
It's being born again. It's being regenerated. It's that new heart replaced from the old stone. It's a desire for God. And that was what was missing in the law. If you were to read carefully, you would see that there was an answer to it, but that it wasn't, it was not found. As the glory of God revealed on Moses' face, legitimized his ministry, many were had the fear of God because they would look on his face and they would be fearful. Look, he's talked with God and he's lived. It legitimized Moses' ministry. So did the changed life of the Corinthians legitimize Paul. Paul says, you want to know what my boldness and confidence is? You want to know why I I believe you should follow my teachings? Why is it that I can speak to you in such a way? Because you yourself are legitimizing my ministry. Your changed heart, the new life, is a legitimization of the glory of the new covenant. The question you and I may ask, all right? But this is not what's going on in this church. For the most part, you are not coming and saying, Rob is not legitimized here, or Rob isn't uh, qualified to teach here. I haven't had to write you or boldly uh, come to you and rebuke you for, for anything going on in your life. So you and I, we're, this letter informs us of what's going on, but it shares with us something that I believe that we need to grab a hold on. And that's the new covenant. See, you and I have a new heart. You now can have a new desire for God, and it's promised in the new covenant, and it's a present reality. For Moses and those that lived this time before Christ, they looked forward to that. They were living in such a way that they were living with a burden, sometimes that could have been so difficult, day in, day out, trying to follow all 613 laws. Could you imagine living your life that way? realizing that you're failing in so many ways. But you and I now are looking back at Jesus, the one, the, new, the minister of the new covenant, the one who, in, who instituted it. We're looking now at the Spirit. You and I are now in the freedom. You and I now have a, a greater glory than those of old. So you and I have to realize that we're now recipients of a new covenant. We don't have an old law. We don't have to follow a bunch of do's and don'ts to be right with God. And unfortunately, many times, that's what a lot of religions try to make it out of it. Do this and don't do that. But you and I, as recipients of the new covenant, we need to realize that the old covenant law and the New Testament exhortation for believers are not the same. The law condemns, but you and I can really live out the New Testament commands. The difference between the Old Testament law and the New Testament ethics that are found in the New Testament is the Spirit. The Spirit indwells us and it now empowers us to live out the ethics laid down in the New Testament. So can you and I do what God has commanded us? Yes, we are enabled, we are empowered. For those of us that trust in Christ, He now has given us His Spirit and now we are empowered to live that out. You and I can now honor the Lord and live holy lives through the power of the Spirit. We may not do it perfectly, but yet we can do it consistently. And as recipients of the new covenant, you and I know from Romans chapter 8 that there is no longer any condemnation. Amen? For those of us that have accepted Christ and trust, we do not have to earn perfect obedience. 
It's been earned for us. It's been applied to my life. My record of wrongs and doings have been cleared out yesterday, today, and tomorrow. And now I can look for complete relationship with Christ. So you and I as recipients, that ought to give us boldness and confidence. And as we say, boldly go to the throne room of God. We don't have to approach God with our tails between our legs or just shaking, waiting for God to smack us down. No, we're recipients of something that has so much glory. Swim in it. Swallow yourself in it of God's grace that He has for us. and Live out the life God has called us to do. And this is what's unfortunate. Because you guys remember, as the, the Corinthians are struggling with Paul, there's conflict between father and children. And they're not living out the, the, the implications of the New Testament. They're not loving Paul. They're not submitting to his authority. They are bitter uh, quarreling among them. They are not living as recipients of the New Covenant. So I ask you, are you today? Are you living as one who stands uh, perfect before God? Are you living as, as one who's freed from sin? No longer do you have to choose to sin. You now, for those of us that have accepted Christ, we have a new life. Live out that power. Live out that freedom. I implore you to do so. And then I want to give you one. Not only one last one, not only as a recipient of the new covenant, are we to live out and we are not only empowered. We are not only recipients of the new covenant, but you and I are also ministers of the new covenant. And we're going to see that in a couple of weeks as he's given us the ministry of reconciliation. And as Paul was a minister of the new covenant, so are you and I. And so you and I are called to share the gospel that there is life, that you can be right with God, that there can be a relationship with God. And also you and I need to have boldness and confidence as that as new as covenant minister, excuse me, of the new covenant that we ought to be bold and confident as we share that message that God himself will reach down and implant into those that he has chosen the new hearts. And we ought to be bold and confident that there will be transformed hearts because of the message we have. That's what got Paul through those terrible, terrible days. It's probably the only thing that gave him hope as he was sitting in a prison, rotting, shipwrecked for three days, or once again, with his back splayed out as they were giving him wish, uh, lashes and whips and beatings. As he laid there and people were throwing the stones on him, I could imagine the only thing that got him through is the fact that God's will will be done. Let me ask you, do you have the boldness and confidence that comes by being a, not only a recipient of the new covenant, but also a minister? Would you join with me in praying that God would empower us to live as Paul did. Father, I thank you for the life of Paul. And many times these things can be difficult. It's hard to get our minds wrapped around the law, the, the spirit, regeneration, and all these types of things. But Lord, just free our minds and our hearts from the things that keep us from seeing. May your spirit come and just find fruitful ground and may it be implanted in our, in, our, in our hearts and may it grow. 
Lord, give us boldness and confidence to live not only as recipients of the new covenant, but also, Father, as ministers of it. Do your work through us. Lord, may we be active in living out the realities of the new covenant. Father, we thank you for that, for in it we find life. In the name of your Son, we pray, who made all these things possible for us. Lift our prayers to heaven. In your name we pray. We hope you have enjoyed this week's Walking in Faith podcast. We encourage you to share this podcast with others in order to help spread God's message to all those in need. If you have any questions or comments, we would love to hear from you. Email us at walkinginfaith at orangevilla.org. You can help us spread this podcast by writing a review at iTunes. And don't forget to visit us online at orangevilla.org. There you will find more information about our ministry, as well as share your thoughts, submit prayer requests, and find out how you can help others to grow in God's love. Until next week, may God bless you in everything you do.